Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. We tend to forget that special needs kids grow up and have sexual needs as well. It's something that is not widely enough talked about, so we thought it would be worth a discussion with a doctor who actually directly deals with these issues. Maureen Willihan is a gynecologist in Palm Beach County, Florida, and she was good enough to give us some time this morning to discuss this topic. Dr. Willihan, thank you so much for being with us. Well, good morning. My pleasure. Let's start by talking about the special needs kids. You would think that as we progress and have all of this availability to sexual information at a younger age, that the parents become better at introducing this topic to their children, special needs or not. But no, I think the same problems still exist culturally, religiously, personally. And so however the parent was taught about sex is pretty much how they teach their kids. So there's still a very big need. So what happens is in my GYN practice, the moms often bring the child to my office either for a problem that they've evaluated or because they're just uncomfortable talking about sex and they know I'm open to having that discussion. Are most gynecologists like you? No, just like regular people, everyone has their hang up or not about how they think and talk about sex. It just so happens that this conversation comes to me very easily. Someone said, you talk about sex like I talk about high blood pressure. It just flows for me. So no, not all gynecologists feel interested in having this conversation. Do the mothers bring their daughters to you for birth control advice or general relationship advice, shall I say? Why do they bring them? It can be either. Sometimes it's irregular periods or a menstrual problem that initiates the first visit or initiates the first discussion between mom and daughter and they pass it by me. And sometimes the mom is starting to recognize sexual behaviors in their children, even in their disabled children, by the way, and they start wondering whether they should be intervening now based on these behaviors that they see. So it could be coming in just for that. I really try and feel out the kid and because sometimes it's the parent that's just paranoid and has overread a situation. And I don't get the sense at all talking, looking at the body positioning of the child or listening to the conversation that any things going on. Sometimes I think the parent is way in the weeds and not paying attention and I think there's overt sexual activity going on. So a lot in the body language can tell me what's going on with the kid and based on that is how my conversation goes. If I think they're mature enough, even if they're not sexually active, I may go into the sex conversation and take it as far as I think the kid is maintaining interest. I really try and read the situation, but oh yes, we get into the whole technique of it all and sometimes even discuss orgasm in cases where the kid declares that uh, she is already sexually active. So in the state of Florida, children are emancipated when it comes to reproductive health. So they can seek and receive care for STD testing, pregnancy, pregnancy evaluation, and contraception without parental consent. In fact, in the state of Florida, Planned Parenthood has a program called Teen Time, which is for children 12 to 18, and it's free examination, STD testing, and consultation and birth control. So they can come to my office without the parent. 
But in most cases, the parent is the one bringing them to the office. If I see conflict between the mom and, and the child, I will make the mom step out so that I can get a realistic conversation going with the kid. If the mom is open and engaging and the kid does not mind mom in the room, then I let mom stay. And often I empower the child or the kid, the daughter, by saying, is it okay if mom stays in for this conversation or would you like me to have her leave? 50% of the time, the kid asks for mom to step out. And what about young boys? Um, I, they would probably not go to you. Is there any sense of how much of a similar process they are getting from their pediatricians? So rarely I get the opportunity to talk to a young boy um, where the mom just feels like she's connected enough to me and the kid is open to it, and he will come to the gynecologist's office to hear me talk. It's rare, but I do do it. Um, the problem for the boys is, you know, they don't talk to their doctors. Men don't talk to their doctors too often either. So uh, the pediatrician would be their first source. And unless you have a really engaged pediatrician that knows how to talk to teens and will draw it out of them, it is often a missed opportunity. A family practice doctor may be even a better source because they take care of the kid or the family from birth to death. And so um, they're a little bit more aware of how that child has changed over the years. Often it's up to the patient or the child to bring up the conversation with the doctor, unfortunately. There seems to be, from what I've seen over the years, the maturation, puberty in girls younger and younger, and the differences between how they are physically and how they are psychologically can be quite a, quite a, a difference. My wife would often say that we have a little girl in a woman's body which I think just captures it. How much of that is an issue? Do you need just to tell kids to hold on, don't do anything, wait till they grow up a little bit? The whole notion of the media presence and open sexuality must be quite a challenge for you. Right. And I think it's really important that you just don't say, don't do it. So here's a young lady whose body looks like a young woman, fully developed, sexual hormones raging around her body. She's exposed to pornography. She's exposed to the language at school. She's exposed to it all and has all kinds of questions and curiosities. And what is the parental message? Oh, don't do it. It's bad. That is a lost opportunity because once you see this happening, it should be more validation listen, your body's changing. I know boys are looking at you more because you have large breasts or because your figure is so cute. But let me tell you the perils of engaging in sexual activity at an early age. And when I talk, I actually start by saying, I'm not the sex police. I'm not going to tell you not to have sex. In fact, sex is great when it's done in the right way. But let's talk about the worries about having sex. Here's what I see in my office. And then it gives me the opportunity to talk about STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, and pregnancy, and all the things that can be long-reaching. So I think that giving the message of you're just too young, this is for older people, only married people do this, I think you're missing an opportunity because the kids are hearing a whole different message at school. You quickly mentioned the notion of Internet pornography. Big problem, big problem across all age groups. What about kids that you're talking to? Oh, yeah. Listen, parents have no idea how much pornography their kids are being exposed to. I can't tell you how shocked they are, but still in denial, when their kid who's 13 comes in completely shaved pubic area, and my comment to them is, where's the hair? And the kid says, oh, I shaved it off. 
I said, but you just got all that. You just earned that. You know, what happened here? And to me, I'm very disturbed by a 13-year-old who's shaving her pubic hair off. What is she looking at that makes her think that hair should be gone? And so the parents are completely missing these signs in these otherwise very naive young girls having these discussions out loud and saying, hey, this is a problem. The kids are seeing this in either print nudity or pornography, and it can make a long-lasting impact, especially in young boys. Let's move a little bit now to specific needs or concerns that you have with someone with Down syndrome, mental retardation, an Asperger, we don't use that term anymore, autism spectrum disorder child. What's the difference? I just get the sense these kids are more vulnerable, but I want to hear from you. Yes, vulnerable. Certainly, they're more likely to be victimized, but really you have to just look at some of the other more commonalities. For instance, in Down syndrome, that is a very loving group of kids, and so they are very curious about sex. I have numerous young girls in my practice that have Down syndrome, and of course, their ability to communicate with me is broad, but most of them are, I almost think they're mosaics, meaning they have some normal cell lines and down cell lines because they can have such a conversation with me. But sometimes these young girls will tell me elaborate sexual stories of first he licked her here and then he did this and I stand there and listen. And then I ask who the people are involved and she gives me names. Oh, that was Dion. And and then I go out and talk to the mom. I'm like, who the heck is Dion? And it's like a soap opera star or something. So they're able to absorb these romantic scenarios and envision themselves participating. So it's very important in Down syndrome that we get them on birth control or sterilize them early on. But most of these kids are on federal funding, and federal funding does not allow permanent sterilization until after age 21, which is fine because surgery is not necessary to achieve effective birth control in this population. So some are on birth control pills, some receive the Depo-Provera injection, which is a long-acting progesterone only that's given every three months. But you really have to address Down syndrome. In regards to Autistic children, obviously, you know, there's a huge spectrum of function for them. And also, don't forget the girls with mental illness. If I were to tell you the most likely girls to have sex first are girls with bipolar disease, especially bipolar mania, or that have ADD, because both those populations have big surges of norepinephrine going on at times, and they're most likely to have impulsive behavior And so parents of daughters with these disorders need to be extremely proactive in getting their kids on birth control early. The label of special needs is usually not applied to people who have bipolar disorder or depressions or ADD. And yet with reference to what you're talking about, there is a special need. It's just an interesting point that I've never really thought of so tightly. Very interesting. Right. And that's much more abundant, right? Far more children with mental illness than with Down syndrome or other disorders. So you have to think of all of these children as a more at-risk population based on their medical condition. Do you see these children on a regular basis? Do you end up, in effect, being a counselor? Oh, I think... (laughs) Uh, I think gynecology is one-third psychology slash psychology, uh, psychiatry. It's interesting. Either it is the 
fact that I've evolved that way because I'm so interested in how people feel. But remember that someone can come to me for pelvic pain and there's not an ounce of pain felt on that exam while I'm distracting them with interesting conversation that they want to talk about. It is really, what does this pain mean? Where is the real pain in your body? And so over time, especially in sexual medicine, you learn that the problem is not always the problem. And often the problem is going on in the brain. And let's figure out what that is. So yes, I think a third of my day is spent being a psychologist slash psychiatrist. Sometimes it gets a little bit more difficult if somebody has very significant special needs, whatever variety. We talk about them being, shall I say, abused by older people. So you get a younger girl who is very, very attractive, looks very much like a woman, and you get an 18-year-old guy, and he's looking at her and thinking, well, she likes sex and she's an easy mark. How do you go about helping the young girl learn to say no or know when it's appropriate and not appropriate to engage in a relationship? First, you have to understand whether the child has the capacity to even say no. If they don't understand why they should say no or feel the power to have that resistance, then you really have to be more proactive and say, okay, since I don't think she's capable of understanding when she should say no because she likes the attention of this boy, I'm going to put her on birth control to make sure that if this happens, I have backup. In most of these kids, remember, kids don't get their first internal exam until they're 21. In the past, if you had Down syndrome or cerebral palsy and were in a wheelchair and or other types of conditions where we assume there's no sexual behavior, then often you would not subject that child to a pattern smear at any age because of the trauma that it would cause, unless you really had concern and then you would do an exam under anesthesia. But that's a whole rigmarole to do that. And so you don't routinely go to the OR to do a vaginal check on a, a Down syndrome kid who you don't think is having sex. So you really have to have a high index of suspicion and and don't also assume that it's the girl that's the victim because the guy is knowledgeable. I've had cases where the girl was a normal, knowledgeable 15-year-old. The guy was 35, but clearly at the mental level of probably an 18-year-old, but he looked like a man. He was a man at 35, and they were having consensual intercourse. She was in love with him. He was doting on her. She got pregnant. The parents found out and obtained the products of conception by the sheriff's department and got the DNA of the fella, and he went to jail for that. And really, this was just two people in love with each other and a 35-year-old man with the mental capacity of probably an 18-year-old boy. So it can go both ways, but again, you have to understand the whole situation. Well, then let's pursue what happens if a girl 17 years old, and there is a handicap, and she does get pregnant. Who is allowed to consent for an abortion if that is wanted or to carry the baby to term? Is there any legal precedent on how to handle these things? And I know there's all shades of gray here, but as an overall rule of thumb, is there any format that you use to go about dealing with a girl like this who's pregnant? So I think it really begins with, does the child have a legal guardian still, or is she able to be emancipated? So in the state of Florida, if you're 16 and you're pregnant, you make all of your own decisions for prenatal care. Interestingly, if you break your arm during that pregnancy and you need a surgery to reduce the fracture, your parent has to consent for that. Yet, meanwhile, you're in charge of all the decisions of your newborn at 16. But anyway, if I think it's all about if the child has the capacity to make their own decisions, you always go with the will of the child. But I would think in most of these cases, the child is incapable 
and lives with the parent and is not working or not going to school in the usual way. And so I think the parent then gets to help with the decision. If you have a defiant child that says no, whether they understand why or not, and the parent says yes, then I think the courts probably intervene on that behalf. But it really becomes a sticky topic in regards to a termination of pregnancy and so forth. It gets to be a real interesting conversation in this case. Each family deals with it the way their religious beliefs guide them. Very complex. Now, let's go to another group for a few minutes. The lesbians, transgenders, gay folks, do they come to you as well for help? Yes, of course. Probably as a female gynecologist, I'd probably have a, a higher disproportion of lesbians than perhaps a male gynecologist. So in my practice, maybe 20% of my patients declare themselves as in a lesbian relationship. And of course, there's a whole spectrum of what that means because I don't think there's a static point in your life that that is. But anyway, I also personally see transgenders, both male to female and female to male, but only because of my interest in sexual medicine. I don't think the usual gynecologist would attract that client. That said, those groups are the most uncomfortable walking into a traditional doctor's office because they always feel put upon by society. So offering some words of a comfort to say, I'm open to this conversation and I feel comfortable with you in my office and I hope you feel at home here. And and I have brochures that are specific for the lesbian and transgender folks. So when I'm advertising at one of their events, I don't have a heterosexual couple on my brochures. Fascinating. Maureen Wellahan is a gynecologist in Palm Beach County. Dr. Wellahan, thank you so much for being with us. Great discussion today.